Welcome to Wider Lens, a podcast brought to you by the Directors Guild of Canada in Ontario. I can't wait for you all to hear today's conversation, as I'll be chatting with the exceptional creatives behind Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. Production designer Tamara Deverall, costume designer Louis Sequeira, and producer J. Miles Dale. All three nominated for Oscars at this year's Academy Awards. After working with Del Toro on multiple projects over the course of nearly two decades, Tamara, Luis, and Miles have developed a formidable creative brain trust. We're going to delve into the film's lush look and what it takes to shape a film as visually complex as Nightmare Alley. I think for Guillermo, the art department is sacred territory, and he's obviously such a visionary. He's really connected to the art department, so he it was his safe zone. Where they turn to for inspiration, I went to Spain, I went to Rome, I went to the UK, and I had, you know, an incredible array of costumes that were not really seen much in North American cinema. And what it means to be nominated for an Academy Award for their work on this film. To have the recognition of your peers in terms of these kinds of nominations, I think it's just a validation that your work is really good. I mean, I'm frankly very humbled by it. I'm Annie Bradley, and this is Wider Lens. All three of you are nominated for this year for Best Production Design, Best Costume Design, and Best Picture. And I think a lot of people would like to know just about the origins of your working relationship with Guillermo and how that all came to be. And maybe what I'll do is I'll start with Miles, because I think you were sort of the genesis of this all, and you brought this team together. Well, uh, yes, in a way, even though... Tamara worked with Guillermo before I did as an art director on Mimic. Guillermo and I have been working together for over 10 years. First on Mama, he was directing Pacific Rim at the time, and he needed someone to produce Mama. Our good friend Edgar Wright introduced us, and I did that film. I brought Lewis onto that film, so that was his introduction to Guillermo. Lewis and I had been working together for a number of years prior to that, since we were both in diapers, really. And Tamara and I had been working together for a while as well at that point. And then we got together on The Strain, the television show in 2013. So that was really the beginning of the four of us working together. So, you know, the beauty of that is that there's a real shorthand. We're all very fond of each other, obviously. The working relationships, the personalities, the taste, the expectations, you know, there's really something to that. On most films, you know, there'll be some new people and there'll be some new personalities. And it's like a bit of a chemistry project sometimes where you roll the dice on the fit of those temperaments and tastes and everything else. And with this group, you know, we're past that now, which is kind of a lovely thing. As we all know, making movies is hard and making great movies is even harder. So to have, you know, this group together and we just finished a very difficult anthology series for Netflix, where I really have to say, if not for Tamara and her group and Lewis and his group, you know, it would have been a disaster or even worse, possibly mediocre. (laughs) So I feel like the time that we've got in together, you know, has been wonderful. And we've really built a great core together. It was a longtime dream of Guillermo's to adapt the book Nightmare Alley, which the film is based on. And I wonder, Miles, if you could just talk about Why was now the moment to bring Nightmare Alley to the screen? Well, Guillermo had wanted to do it for a long time. You may be familiar with the story, but Ron Perlman, when they were making Kronos, they wanted to do something together, you know, along the lines of Elmer Gantry with Ron in the lead. And Ron had suggested Nightmare Alley. Of course, they couldn't get the rights. Tyrone Powers' estate had it tied up. But Ron was going to play Stan Carlisle. So 
cut to 25 years later, Guillermo and his new wife, Kim Morgan, talked about just writing something as an exercise and turned out they were both big fans of the book and the original movie. And so they, they kind of just started writing it. Tamara, when he came to you with Nightmare Alley, what were your initial conversations like? Where did you begin? I think mostly we looked at a lot of research together, and Guillermo is very good at doing his homework and drawing references and resources, and he'll refer to painters and other films and books and history. He also, like, was buying props on eBay for, like, he couldn't help himself. He was buying straight-edge razors and all kinds of things. He really gets into it. And when I say research, I mean, like, curated research. So I would find things that I thought that would speak to Guillermo and show him and we'd have a bit of a dialogue. And, you know, our language is a very visual language. So we share images, we share sketches. He comes into the art department. He'll stand with me at the set designer's computers and go through things. We built little blocks for the carnival. Mark Kutenbrauer, our construction coordinator, before he even started, he, I said, can you just cut me some little, you know, toy blocks? And Guillermo and I played with that and tried to figure out the area of the carnival, how big it was going to be, what the relationships were going to be, like in a very preliminary fashion. In Nightmare Alley, there's these two distinct worlds. There's a world, you know, of the carnival, which is strangely a much more moral world, a a world that has community and has a sense of purpose in it. And then there's the world uptown. So can you talk a little bit about what those aesthetic differences were from his point of view and how you guys collaborated on creating the authenticity of those two worlds? Well, I mean, it was really like working on two movies, not surprisingly. The carnival, we wanted it to be very real and very gritty and really like have the audience feel like they're walking into a carnival. Like that was our first approach. And then the embellishments of the Del Toro vision of it and and Dan Lauschton's lighting, you know, and the costumes and everything that made it into our world sort of came at the same time, but a little bit after figuring out what is it like to be walking into a carnival in the 1930s. And then for the high society art deco world, it's like being Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, one day you'd be a carny and the other day you'd be this high society wearing a full length gown and looking at all these glamorous and beautiful art deco locations. I mean, for that, you know, again, there was a lot of research and I wasn't just looking at art deco with Guillermo. We were looking at different paintings for composition and Hammershoy, actually for some of the earlier stuff who's a Danish painter, and we were looking at Andrew Wyeth for the Country Shack. Like, you know, we're drawing from all sorts of different references. I do want to say for the Art Deco side of it, the locations we found in both Toronto and Buffalo were really a big part of assisting me in the design process and vision. Like, it was very helpful, even locations that we walked into that we didn't shoot at. There were things that Guillermo and I were seeing. You know, I have pictures of Miles in a telephone booth in the Hotel Lafayette in Buffalo, where we didn't shoot, but We built a booth like that. I mean, it was great reference for us collectively. I'll need that photo back. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, no. It's it's, it's going on Twitter. (laughs) And maybe just talk a little bit about the authenticity in building that carnival world. Because I think a lot of times, you know, we look at films like that and we think, oh, yeah, there's a certain amount of visual effects happening here. Or, you know, they've built this in a studio, etc. But can you maybe just talk about how you built the carnival and what level of authenticity you went to in that regard? We pretty much built everything but for the Ferris wheel and the, the carousel. We found a good 1920s, 1930s carousel that we had to refurbish. 
bring it back to the original look and we added to it. So it was really built from the ground up in a grassy field parking lot. Like it was, there was nothing there. We had a great company in the Midwest of the States who'd been building, you know, family business had been building tents for hundreds of years, really literally had built the Barnum and Bailey first circus tents. And so they were extremely helpful and we would dye patches, send them the fabric to build. Once we decided on the weight, we aged them, we put them up, we took them down, we put them up, we had a pandemic, but it was all real. Nature had a big part of this because it blew through the carnival, like for real. And that's what I think made it so magical. Thank you, nature. <laughs> all of the actors said to me, actually, how much they appreciated that the carnival was, everything was in situ. So, you know, you would walk into that carnival and you know, everything was where it was supposed to be and there was steam coming and you'd walk into those tents, the wind would blow through and the, the tents would be surging. It was like the the heart and lungs of the carnival and it really came alive. And, and for the actors, it, it was never something that could have been built in the studio with any kind of believability. So it, it was really kind of a living, breathing thing. And also too, let's not forget the rain the constant rain when you're out in a grassy field. Which means melting clothes to Lewis is what it is. Lewis, Lewis, you should address the rain. Lewis, how many conversations did we have about rain where Lewis is saying, I've got this stuff from the 30s, and as soon as the water hits it, it's going to turn into mud. It's going to fall apart. It's going to fall apart. Yeah, a lot of negotiations with Guillermo about who got rained on and when and how people would not show up to the carnival in the rain. We can have carnies there, but the townsfolk... No, no, they should not be there. Luis, maybe you could talk about this with, you know, the collaboration that goes back and forth, because part of the carnival world and part of, of course, world building is background, is characters, is, you know, wardrobe, et cetera, that lends to the, and builds the authenticity of the experience for the viewer. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about how Tamara and you worked on that hand in hand. You're talking about a palette of colors, et cetera. What was your approach to building the world of the carnival? Well, at the beginning, we, we obviously did the same sort of thing as Tamara. We had lots of imagery, uh, you know, five, three inch binders of imagery that we looked through and, and curated. And I curated boards to show Guillermo. And I really wanted to understand what was in his head for each world so that we could procure those items and fall within his vision. Interestingly enough, that period was very popular and not available in North America. And Guillermo had done a devil's backbone in, in Spain and said, why don't you go to Spain? And I said, I love that idea. So I went to Spain, I went to Rome, I went to the UK, and I had you know an incredible array of costumes that were not really seen much in North American cinema, which was kind of wonderful to pull in together and, and bring back to Toronto. From the, those early meetings, it was about the color palette, the textures, the styling. But even though there's two years between the, the city and the country, we really wanted to create this, this chasm of worlds. Early 30s for the carnival and on point 1941 for the city. And then working with Tamara, of course, throughout the whole project, we were in constant contact looking at colors, making sure that they blended without, you know, getting sandwiched in to each other, the importance of using sparingly red or, or derivatives of. And then it was really about building those textures. And because of the rain, there were many budgets handed in 
for what about this and what about that and how about 50 people in the rain and how about a hundred people anyway we built a lion's share of all those carnival clothes and then had to age them all because everyone had triples they were re-wearing the same clothing for those those couple of months and so you know my incredible team we took those clothes we aged the cloth before we built it we made the clothes turn well made costumes turn them into clothes and then aged them back out again I know the actors had spoken to me about how wonderful they felt in those costumes because they felt the age and the the history. I've always said that great wardrobe for an actor is like the skin of a character. You know, great wardrobe can change an actor's performance and elevate an actor's performance as well as, you know, diminish an actor's performance, as we well know. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what you and Guillermo talked about when you were trying to come up with these very distinct personalities that exist in the world of the carnival. Yeah, so early early on, by curating some of those images, we zeroed in on some images that really spoke to each of the characters. And from there, I started building some of those pieces. I think what's really important for me in a fitting, in your first fitting, obviously before that is getting the feedback from those boards, from the actors, to see how they feel about it, because obviously they're part of the process and it truly is collaborative that way. But then when they come into the fitting and we start putting things on, it really kind of morphs. And the more comfortable an actor feels, the more successful your fitting is going to be. And I think what I really wanted was those costumes to become their clothing, for them to not think about it, for them to just put those pieces on, feel like Xena, feel like Bruno, feel like whoever they were playing. Luckily, I have to say that Guillermo and Miles really understand the importance of having actors come in early. It is immensely uh, helpful to the process. And really, it's taking the direction, obviously, of Guillermo's bringing what what I can bring to the table, having the actors weigh in, and, and then collectively, it all gets refined. And in the process, there are micro decisions that have to be made all the time. And I often say, as a costume designer, sometimes I'm really just a costume decider because there are so many little things that have to be decided in the meantime beyond the finished product. I think one of the things that was so remarkable for me about the film was the sort of underlying themes. What was the fascination with circles? (laughs) And I'm just wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about where that came from, why it was important, and how you incorporated that into the design. It was so intentional, and it was very intentional for Guillermo, but it was also very organic. Like, it sort of became, we did the geek pit, and then it was Stan is caught in in a circle. And Guillermo loves to play with shapes in design. And then it was sort of the game of where are we getting other circles in here? And we found the Carlu where we did the club and it has this beautiful circle ceiling and we built a big circular platform to bring us our actors up to the ceiling. And so there it was again. And then the actual Carlu itself, which is this beautiful deco, lovingly restored uh, location in Toronto, you know, it had circle windows. So we played with that. And then we went back to the carnival at the end where there was a circle window in the last carnival trailer where Bradley Cooper says his his final line. I was always thinking of Stan is just in a circle. Like he ends where he starts, he ends where he starts. He he doesn't really evolve. He is he's a shyster, he is sinned, he's whatever you want to think about that character. He starts that way and he ends that way. The circle is really that Stan is going to end up in that circle. So uh, I think with Guillermo these shapes are again very intentional and it's just like Lilith's office is also an alley. You know, there are two major thematic shapes one is a circle and the other is the alley so stan is either 
in a circle or in a nightmare alley. And Stan, you know, we see him, you talk about the transition of the worlds. The first time we see him in 1941, when we get to the Copa, we, theoretically, he's at the top of the world. He's, he's looking good. He's got the girl. He's selling out. You know, he left the carnival happy with Molly. We see him in, in Buffalo. He's not happy. You know, nothing will make him happy. And so really and truly, the film is, is a character study. And you talk about those themes, and that's why we didn't have Stan speak for the first 10 minutes of the movie. So the audience is being pulled along with him, and he becomes an avatar for the audience. And ultimately, I think the, the big statement is that, but for a couple of bad decisions in your life, you could be Stan. So you better decide where you stand on truth and lies, because really anybody who takes the wrong fork in the road or two, you could end up there. So in that way, it's kind of a cautionary tale and all the things that we do and Tamara does and Lewis does. And, and Lewis could talk about that, how Bradley's wardrobe was there to support that. It all goes to story and character. Luis, maybe you wanted to talk a little bit about the character work that you did with Bradley in, you know, redefining him as he moves through into this other world and he thinks more highly of himself, et cetera. Again, in those initial fittings with Bradley and putting those pieces together, we spoke about the, the difference in fit for Stan, the beginning, and, and Stanton, the city. And part of the thought was to hide his physique in the carnival. And as he grew uh, more powerful by means of his manipulative ways, he would the clothing would start to come together closer to his body so that when we saw him in the city, everything was impeccably fit. And that was really the core of creating these two sides of Stanton. And conversely, at the end, he's completely swallowed by his costume at the end of the, the picture. For the city, what was wonderful is I had this opportunity to get real 1939 suits that had never been worn. They were they still had government stamps from the UK and they were gifted uh, to me on loan. And my tailor and I took a look at them. We, we pulled the pattern away and we created these blocks for Bradley. So the preciseness of fit was key for me. And in regards to Kate, again, it was looking at really specific details of that period and not just the period, but those specific years from Paris sketchbooks and picking out those details that we're going to say, this is 1940, 1941. Mm -hmm. And then trying to, with Stan, giving him a nouveau riche edge. So even though the fabrics were beautiful and luxurious, there was still an edge to him that was speaking to his newfound money as opposed to the other characters that were old money. So, Tamara, I just want to ask you about The Office, Dr. Lilith's office. And, I mean, it's a character under itself. Obviously, there's so many elements in that office that are very, you you know, the buttons under the tables, the hidden recording device, the, the key in the lock, like so many beautiful things that speak to the control that that doctor has over her patients, over her who is trying to exert, I think, over her life. Maybe you could just talk about the ideas behind the design of that office, where it came from. There was a specific couple of places I looked at. There's one in the Brooklyn Museum. There's a little study that they've transplanted by Parisian designers they put in there. It was, it was in a house in, in Manhattan, and it's called the Wild Wargate Study, and it's on their design floor, and it's their Art Deco 
sort of room. And I showed that to Guillermo and I said, look, this is beautiful. It's all inlaid wood and uh, it's all of veneer. I spoke to the curators. I found out more about it. it, had lacquer panels, it had large windows. But like literally I'd been going to the museum for years because my brother lives down the block and I'd be pressed against this the glass of this little room and and going like, I love this. I want to build this one day. So it was in my head for a long time. And when Lilith came up in the script, I was like, bingo. And I was also looking at, there's a, another place in, in England called the Eltham Palace, which is all inlaid wood. So wood kind of became crucial. Like it became sort of the theme for her office. And then we had a big to-do about what we were going to do with the floor, whether it was going to be marble or carpeting, which a lot of the Art Deco rooms like that would have been carpeted certainly our sample room in the Brooklyn Museum was carpeted we ended up going with real marble floors which I think just the click clack of our heels on that marble and all the scenes that had to play down there and the reflections that Dan Lauschton was able to get and actually using real marble in many ways is cheaper I know you go wow real marble but really it's cheaper than us trying to replicate it you know as as excellent as our scenics are you just there's nothing like the real thing and we actually used it on the strain in one of our big office sets there. That was the first time I used real marble. And I was like, you know, Guillermo, remember, Miles, remember when we did that and how successful it was. So that was a complicated build in so many ways. Like just the carpenters, I think we drove them crazy with all the little gags and things that had to open and slide perfectly. You know, you don't, <laughs> you don't want the actress to be going like this with the door. So like, you know, I drove everybody crazy going down every day, twice a day, open. No, a little smoother, a little shave off here. A little. But, you know, we have amazing carpenters in Toronto and they really excelled with this. So Also, too, you used... The RC water plant, right? The RC Harris plant, yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because it was quite extraordinary when you when you walked into it. Did you build inside of that plant? So Guillermo knew that plant from way back on Mimic. It was actually, coincidentally, the first day we shot on Nightmare Alley, we shot there. And the first day we shot on Mimic, we shot there as well. And the inside, we used it as a hospital in Mimic. And so he knew about it. And I don't even think, Miles, we had a conversation about it. We just knew we were going to use that for Grindles. It wasn't, we didn't even need to talk about it. It was like, oh, yeah, we're going there. Well, we had a conversation and then I had to call Mayor Tory <laughs> because right. nobody had shot there since 9-11. You know, they shut it all down. I think John Carpenter was the last guy to shoot there. And it had to go to city council, and we, we were we were on bended knees. So it's not you guys may have waved your hand around, and then I had to go do some work. Uh, so we were the the first film to shoot there in twenty years. Inside there, yeah, that was pretty remarkable unto itself. I mean, it's an amazing facility, and I mean, a, an Art Deco jewel. And then, of course, you built Grindel's office to match that. Guillermo has been with us now in Ontario for quite some time. And, you know, it's obviously a difficult business, the film business. And now, of course, you know, in the last couple of years has become even more difficult. You had to stop for six months with the pandemic. And Guillermo's films are very involved and very intensive. What keeps you coming back to his films and, and this industry in general? Having the chance to work with Guillermo, why would you want to do anything else? I mean, I've said this before, if I die not having worked with another filmmaker i will die happy it's a great experience like i said you, you know he knows what he wants it's always inspired he's smart he's a gentleman he's loyal he's funny 
you know, we've all dealt with people uh, who are not that. And this is just such a pleasure. Your industry has been growing for, you know, 40 years now, let's say. And it used to be that, you know, all the DPs and designers and costume designers came to town and we worked as their assistants. And now we're there, Ontario and Canadian filmmakers. We're proudly standing amongst the top filmmakers in the world. And I think that's an amazing thing. And now we're teaching the next generation of those people. So mentors like Guillermo are critically important to that process. The fact that he, you know, we fluked out and he made his home here for 10 years. It's it's such a beautiful thing because so many people have had the opportunity to, you know, benefit from that and see that great taste and wisdom and vision. And so, I mean, I think we all consider ourselves incredibly fortunate to have been on that ride and to continue to be on that ride. So, I mean, for my part, I couldn't be happier with where we are right now. You know, in my life, I think all of us have these people that one meets and they change your trajectory. And I would say that number one, Miles, you know, you can leave the room for a minute, Miles. Miles is one of those people that I met in 1986. And I was a uh, wardrobe PA, having been a clothing designer, but I started as a trainee and that dedication and kind of passion for, for filmmaking that I found when I walked onto the first set of Friday the 13th, the series, and took it from there. And I think Guillermo is obviously the other person that I would not be here without having met him and worked with him. So I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that. And what Guillermo does bring are those pearls of wisdom. I think the one thing that, that stands out for me that he has said to me that I've taken every day I work is he mentions we could have a beautiful, amazing set, but the minute we go into a close-up, we're no longer looking at that set. We're looking at the collar. We're looking at the design elements that surround that actor's face. And so make sure that you know you have those design elements in play. And in fact, for me now, that changed the way I take fitting photos. I take 360s on some occasions. If it is a true design thing, like a monster or a, a ghoul or something of that nature, I will put them on a turntable and then I will do a 360 and then be able to study and, and finesse design wise for that. And then really it's, it's creating these almost action figure. You know, every character should have the quintessential action figure look so that we can we can identify with each of those characters in our story. Those are the two things that, that sit with me to this day. And I think he himself is very much about collaboration, especially now. I think he's gone through a transformation in the last few years where I think he he really trusts people, you know, puts the bar way up here and allows you to to go to that height. You know, he's a visionary, but he also, you know, Miles, you you downplay yourself because you're also a visionary as as a producer. And I think that's so vitally important that you're not just you're not just talking about, you know, Miles isn't just about money and this and schedule like like you get the filmmaking process. You're a storyteller. And I think that this whole idea of being a team and being together and sharing ideas and lifting each other up, that's what attracted me to the film industry in the first place as a young kid. And that's what we've been living through now. Well, I think that that level of excellence across all crafts on this movie is evident. And I really would like to just wrap this up with one final question. You're all nominated for 
an Oscar. What does that mean to you at this moment in your life? Miles? Any good film is hard work. And to have the recognition of your peers in terms of these kinds of nominations, I think it's just a validation that your work is really good that your your movie has landed it resonates with people and so to us you know at the very highest level it's just nice to know that our peers have said you're now a part of the club that i don't know about these guys if you had asked me 15 or 20 years ago if if i could ever be here i i wouldn't have even dreamed of it and so to me it's really just a, a dream come true to see where we've come and how we've learned at the feet of the masters and now to be in that league, it's a source of immense pride. So it's an honor. I mean, I'm frankly very humbled by it. Luis, I mean, this is your second nomination, correct? It is crazy, completely crazy. I have to echo Miles' sentiment. You are brought forward by your peers. You're brought forward by other costume designers in my case. And this year was such an amazing, stellar year of design. And so to find a place at the table, so to speak, uh, I am truly humbled and, and thankful that the work resonated with my fellow designers. So I, I couldn't be happier. Really, it's not about winning. I am so incredibly humbled to be just a, a nominee amongst those folks. And Tamara? Well, you know, starting this film, I was not expecting all of this. You just kind of put your head down and you, you know, every day I was just trying to do the best visually I could and with a fantastic team and with just like working in sync and like putting together an art department that is so in sync with each other, you know, it never took time to think, oh, we could win some awards with this. Like, this is looking really good. I felt in my heart that it was looking really good. And I felt that we were all doing to the best of our ability with Guillermo as our key visionary. So, yeah, it's humbling to the utmost. And having just won this award last night, I was like, oh, my God, I'm like my first thank you was to the other nominees for these incredible worlds. And and I guess we did the same thing. And it's just really a pleasure and an honor in the biggest way. You know, it's the dream come true. I can't begin to tell you how proud we all are of all of you and the entire teams that you have working with you. And I'd like to thank you on behalf of DGC Ontario and Wider Lens for joining us today and being a part of the exploration of craft and the celebration of excellence. Thank you. Thank you, Annie. Thank you, Annie. This podcast was produced by Katie Jensen and Michal Stein at Vocal Fry Studios. Our video producer is John Pakman. Our executive producer is Anne-Marie Stewart. And special thanks to Aviva Cohen and Laura DiGiralamo at DGC Ontario. And I'm your host, Annie Bradley. We'll see you next time on Wider Lens. <laughs>